Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, Patrick Keelty and Shauna Kerslake on their new movie, Bally Walter. Yes, that Patrick Keelty, who's hosting The Late Late Show. Agatha Christie's great-grandson talks to me about minding the estate and, of course, the new movie, A Haunting in Venice, starring Kenneth Branagh. And Tim Gray of Variety steps down after 42 years of reporting on Hollywood. So he joins me to reminisce about some of the interesting things that happened to him over those 42 years. I'm open on Twitter, John under, or it's now called X, John underscore Farty. Or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. A couple of people emailed and tweeted about me having a cold last week. So thank you for your concern. I was fine. It's all good. I did have to do a test, a COVID test. You know, strange, sticking that thing up your nose again. Just a few days into it, I thought, this doesn't feel great. So, but I, clear, clear as they come. I'm fine, honestly. But thank you for your concern. Normal business, normal business. Now, this week in TV, I was watching this. Holy macaroni! Is, is that He's got to be dead, right? Don't look, don't look. Okay, who has the best arm? What? I do, Jackie. What? I'm thinking we could try and throw things at him and see if he moves. You want to throw rocks at Coach who fell out of the plane? I didn't say rocks. Someone shoe or whatever. Oh, yeah, that's a ton smarter. You're on fire today, Jackie. Oh, wait, that was supposed to be me, huh? Now, that is a clip from Yellow Jackets, which you may be going, what? Is that not two years old? Indeed it is. I caused to watch it for the first time in the last few weeks because I was talking to Pat Kenny about it this week on our series Boxed. I know I always mention that to you, but Pat gives me cause to watch a lot of TV because uh, he's quite the consumer of TV himself and enjoys a good show. But we featured Yellow Jackets. Now, in case you don't know, Yellow Jackets, and you heard a bit of it there, is about a group of girls who are playing for a national or playing for a soccer team in America and they are on their way to the national final and their plane crashes and they go to the mountains or they're in the wilderness, in the Canadian wilderness. And there's kind of a Lord of the Flies vibe about it where they have to just survive for, which is apparent from the first episode, a long time. And in the first episode, and you'll even see this in the trailer, it intimates that there may be cannibalism going on and in tandem with that you have the story principally of four women who have survived this crash when they were teenagers and it fast forwards to the present day and we have Juliet Lewis we have Christine Ricci we have Melanie Linsky and Tony Cypress all playing four adults one of whom is a kind of frustrated housewife Juliet Lewis's character is basically an addict who's who's struggling to get over what happened on the hills they're all struggling to get over what happened in the wilderness Christine Ricci is this wild nurse who's also an amateur detective and a little left of centre and Tony Cypress is this budding politician and these are survivors of the plane crash and it tells their life story now and also what happened in the wilderness in Canada and it does so very very effectively it is gory at times it's very funny at times there's a horror element it's 
messy and it's showing how this crash affected these women in later life and it blends the two storylines very effectively uh, in terms of a bleed over from what happened in the wilderness to their lives now and there's an element of blackmail. It contains a lot of stuff. There are two series so far, uh, only one of which is on Sky, the second is on Paramount Plus which you'll have to ante up for. The second series is even better than the first series. It's really very, very watchable and kind of gets inside your head. Do let me know if you might have watched Yellow Jackets. It is a big recommendation for that from me. Now, as I say, it's two years old at this stage. Now, bizarrely, they are planning another three series. So this narrative arc is going to arc for a long time to come. And it might sound like, how are you going to maintain a story about people trapped in the wilderness and being rescued, possibly, for five series, but based on the first two, easily, it would seem. So, uh, and what I should also say about it is there's a brilliant kind of use of 90s music and that kind of MTV thing. There's a great soundtrack on it as well. So, Yellow Jackets, a big thumbs up from me. Now, take a listen to this. What are you watching? This uh, comedy stuff. For your thing. So, you want to be a comedian? Not really. It's just like a wee course. You know, at the end, we all try out our material, a sort of wee gig thing. Right. Took me. What do you watch? All different. Who do you like? Comedians. Hi. I don't know. Who do you like? Like a lot of the American comedy drama, you know? Saturday Night Live, great tradition, stand-up. Stuart Lee, Bill Hicks, Chris Rock, some of the old-school British classics, Morgan Wise, Molly Python. He's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy. Yes, now that is the great Irish actress, Shauna Kerslake, who was in everything from Hole in the Ground to Can't Cope, Won't Cope, that great, great TV series we saw recently in Bad Sisters on Apple TV. And opposite that, You heard Patrick Keelty. Yes, Patrick Keelty, host of The Late Late Show now. And that's from them in a new movie called Ballywalter, which is a town in Northern Ireland. And this sees two lost souls in a way coming together. Patrick Keelty is a man who's dealing with a divorce and he's now basically hiding out on the run from maybe himself and his family and he's going to a comedy course. Shona Kerslake's character has dropped out of college, is back in her hometown and is driving a taxi as well as working in a coffee shop. And they get to know each other because she's driving him into this from Bailey Walter every day into this comedy club where he's practicing doing a comedy workshop every day. And they start to bond and possibly attempt to find some kind of redemption in where they're going in their lives through their kind of friendship. There's a there's a bit of hope in this friendship. So I got to talk to both Sean and Kerslake and Patrick Keelty about Bally Walter earlier in the week. Sean, if I can start with you, I love the coffee scene where someone's uh, complaining about this is the wrong froth. Yeah. And you handle it brilliantly. And it's a weird place to start. But did you ever work in a coffee shop? Because you kind of had that hatred that and I've been a waiter I know what it's like wanting to tell people to F off did you ever work as a waitress never in a coffee shop but I've worked retail for a long long time so yeah there's been many times where you're just 
yeah. you'd love to say what you're what you're thinking but there's lovely freedom in in that when you get to do that on screen and yeah. you get to t tell somebody what you think what you can't do in yeah, real life exactly. yeah and Patrick, the great question, or not the great question, but in the press release it says his first dramatic role. And I was actually checking, you know, not that they would have got it wrong, but I had to double check. I, I was sure I'd seen you in something dramatic. And then I read down through the Wikipedia, which is never wrong, of course. <laughs> and you haven't done a dramatic lead role before. So why did it, not that you're particularly old, but you've been around a while. Why did it take this long? Uh, you know, for, for me, I think you do what you're offered. Okay. You know? and, uh, <laughs> and I think that, you know, whenever you, you do stand up and you do hosting, and I think that maybe some people, you know, will then go, oh, well, that's what he does. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why would we offer him something else? Um, and I think uh, I think for the guys to take a chance on me on something like this, you know, was really unusual. Mm -hmm. And that's why it was sort of terrifying and, and brilliant to try it, you know? Yeah. Well, you're very good in it as are you what I love about it is the two lost souls in it that they're both at slightly different stages of life but they're ultimately lost and without giving a spoiler they're you know not alone in our loneliness or something the brokenness brings them together is that what you took from it when you first read it I mean it mightn't have been but absolutely that's that's exactly it like you know um, when you meet somebody along your journey and it's like just like a little chapter mm -hmm. in in the story you know like where do they go from here do yeah. they stay in touch do they not like it's all you know it's all there but um yeah and how we can help each other along and when yeah you peel back and you see oh there's actually stuff going on for you and not just me and we realize that everybody is carrying their their baggage along with them yeah. you know a great version of Wagon Wheel. I've oh, well. <laughs> a new appreciation for that song. Was it was it a tune you were familiar with before the? Ah, of course, it was a tune I was familiar with. I didn't know all the I didn't know all the verses, um, beforehand, and probably still don't now. But the lovely thing about it was that I didn't have to, cause I'm, you know, a little bit pissed. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. The if only the person that you were acting alongside in this movie. If only he was hosting a show that had a country special. <laughs> well, could wow. he, he's brought it up. This is great. Yeah. Could, could, late, late show question. That could, that could potentially bring. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, wagon wheel and a country special. Oh, Let, let's God. make the We're deal. Now, I may need some retainer <laughs> for this and get this on tape. Patrick, the idea of a comedy workshop, I thought was funny that it was your character doing that because I could be wrong, but it seems to me that you might think they're terrible ideas the idea that people would sit around and let's be funny now it, had you ever given one had you ever been to one do you think they're a good thing or a bad thing uh, look I, I think uh, there's two things in life there's funny and there's funny for money okay and uh, <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people are funny right funny for money that's a different yeah. thing yeah. and so the idea that you can teach someone to do that I've never really subscribed to that. I think yeah. that you gotta have something to start with and then you can maybe add to it. So to be stuck in that world, mm. uh, in in those scenes, um, I, I, I really enjoyed being <laughs> in those workshop scenes because they were just really awkward. And, yeah. and normally those comedy workshops, they kind of are. 
Yeah, I, I got that sense of it. You know, people always ask stand-up comedians, tell us about your worst gig. And I don't want to do that because it's such a trite question. But that came to my mind watching, without giving a spoiler, part of the movie. But was there ever a gig you did that was just, you were so surprised by how you knocked it out of the park? Or you were dreading it and you got off the stage and you thought, man, that was, I gave it to them tonight. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a sort of worst gig and best gig okay. all all in sort of double all in all in one story. I remember doing a talk show up in Belfast years ago, and you'll not be able to use this, but it's a good story. Okay. Yeah. Was not wasting my precious time. <laughs> no, no, no. And uh, we had Oliver Reed on the show. Oh wow! So Oliver decided to go to the green room and start to drink at one o'clock. As was his wont. Yeah. And uh, we went live at uh, at nine o'clock, and uh, or no ten thirty. So he walked out and he just bought a house in Cork. And I said, Oliver, look, great to have you here in Ireland. Welcome to Ireland. How long have you been in Ireland? To which he replied, live on air, young man, how long is your fuck? Yeah. <laughs> I think I can use that. <laughs> to which I replied, so you haven't been in Ireland that long then? <laughs> so that was my worst yeah. moment and maybe my best comeback all in, all in one go. So uh, Oliver right. Reid. Yeah, well, and then finally, uh, on the way here, everyone was saying, ask him about the late night, ask him about the late late. And I'm tapped out, I'm just going around my head. What? So I have no idea. So Shana, I'm asking you, what do you think I should ask him about the late late show, if you wouldn't mind? Oh, God. Um, is he going to give anything away, though, really? Are you going to give us anything? Well, for nothing. Yeah, oh, like freebies? Or yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like, we know nothing about guests. We know nothing about, like, can you give us anything? Uh, any, oh, so any inside scoop? Any any little inside scoop. Who are um, you wearing? Anything. Yeah. Uh, so the scoop is that the owl, the owl is alive and well. Uh, it looked mm. like I'd kidnapped the owl mm. uh, at one point there. The owl triangle is still going to go jingle jangle, so that is fine. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, in terms of giving away, I thought you meant one for everybody in the audience. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus. Are you going to do that? I don't know, but look, you know, there's a movie opening on the 22nd of September, uh. so, you, so you wouldn't know who might want tickets or not. Well, listen, Ballywalter, which we're here, Walter, sorry, I nearly called it Walter, which we're here to talk about, is terrific. So continued success to both of you. Thank you very much. That's Thank you for that. Good lad. Patrick Keelty and Shona Kerslake there talking to me about Ballywalter and also The Late Late Show, uh, which, if you're listening on Saturday, was on last night and that interview was recorded before it was on last night. So, but anyway... That were his views on it all. Funny Oliver Reed story. Apparently he told that earlier in the week. I, I thought he was the only one who got it anyway. I shouldn't be telling you he already told that. There you go. He told it to me in a different way, you know. Bally Walter is a lovely little movie because it is a little, it is a little story uh, about, as I say, two kind of lost souls and well worth a watch. And I should say, importantly, it is in cinemas next Friday. That's the 22nd of September. Up next, Agatha Christie's great-grandson, on the new Agatha Christie movie directed by Kenneth Branagh called Haunting in Venice. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movies Show. I'm John Fardy. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. I realise it's technically called X, but, you know, in a kind of Lansdowne Road move, I'm going to continue to call it Twitter. So, take a listen to this. I must tell you, madame, I have been all my life uncharmed by your kind. My kind? 
opportunists to prey on the vulnerable, no? You don't believe in the soul's endurance after death. I have lost my faith. How sad of you. Yes, it is most sad. The truth is sad. Please understand, madame, I would welcome with open arms any honest sign of devil or demon or ghost. For if there is a ghost, there is a soul. If there is a soul, there is a God who made it. And if we have God, we have everything, meaning, order, justice. But I have seen too much of the world, countless crimes, two wars, the bitter evil of human indifference. And I conclude, no, no God, no ghosts. With respect, no mediums who can speak to them. You were saying? Oh, I hope you jumped there. I did, even listening back to that. That is Hercule Perot, played by Kenneth Branagh. And you heard him there talking to Michelle Yeoh. And that is from A Haunting in Venice, which is out this weekend in cinemas from the tw- from the 15th. Now, this is based on an Agatha Christie story, a different story, a Halloween party, it was called. And in this, we have Kenneth Branagh playing Poirot, who's now living in Venice, a very kind of gothic, wintry Venice, two years after World War II. And it's a kind of self-imposed exile. And he's kind of said goodbye to all his crime solving and his experience of crimes and, and seeing the worst of humanity also through a Second World War has kind of caused him to give up the ghost. But despite how he gives it up, I mean, they're trying to tell a story and make a movie, crime comes to him. Poirot receives a visit from an old friend, the world's number one mystery writer, Arande Oliver, played brilliantly in this by Tina Fey, who has something she just has to show him and promises him it's not a crime. She wants him to join her at a seance and help her prove that it's not real, despite his better judgment. Poirot finds himself intrigued and reluctantly agrees to attend the seance. And the seance giver is played brilliantly there by Michelle Yeoh. And it's in the house, in the palazzo of uh, opera singer Rowena Drake, played by the lady a lot of people know from Yellowstone, Kelly Riley. And when one of the guests is murdered, the guests in attendance are all considered suspects, thrusting the detective, the Belgian detective, into a sinister world of shadow and secret. Jamie Dornan is also in it as well. And it's kind of classic Poirot, and it, he's uh, Kenneth Branagh has done a nice job with it. As I say, it's kind of gothic-y, and it's a good murder mystery set in a, in, in a dark, wintry Venice. Now, I got to talk to, none of the actors were available because there's a strike on, as you may have heard. However, the man who looks after the Agatha Christie estate is a man called James Pritchard and he's the great-grandson of Agatha Christie. He's a producer on this and he's been involved in the previous Kenneth Branagh adaptations of Agatha Christie and he's in charge of the estate and her legacy and uh, has memories of his great-grandmother as well as you hear because I had a chat with him earlier in the week. So listen, James, I suppose I was slightly surprised and delighted when I saw the movie because it feels like a, a departure of sorts. And I gather that the, the now I haven't read the original source material, it, it's somewhat different uh, and it goes in different directions than what your great-grandmother wrote for, with the Halloween party. Did you have a similar sense of shock, trepidation, excitement when you saw the treatment? 
Um, well, I was kind of prepared for it because um, I had had conversations before <laughs> before we got to that stage. But you are right. It is it is a very significant move away from Halloween Party, which is the source material for this book. I mean, the biggest clue is in the title, which is a, a haunting in Venice. Mm-hmm. Um, the book Halloween Party was set in an English village and and haunting in Venice is obviously set in Venice, but it, but it's more than that. It's it's tonally. Um, the writer Michael Green felt that having made two very classic, very faithful adaptations of two very big classic Agatha Christie titles in Murder on the Orient Express and and Death on the Nile, that maybe we should try and surprise our audience and take them to somewhere that they aren't expecting. And and the main thing that people will be surprised by is the tone, which is, you know, there are elements of horror here. It's not a horror movie. It's very much still a murder mystery. It's still a very much an Agatha Christie experience. But there are jump-out-of-your-seat moments, scary moments. And I think this just shows the flexibility that you have with these stories. Um, you know, you can still explore a murder mystery, but but use elements from other, other genres in in movie. Yeah. And not that you need me to tell you about your movie or compliment you on it, but I, I was remember being at a wedding in Venice once in the wintertime and I got lost on a back street. And maybe it's because of, I don't know, some other movies by Nicholas Rogue and stuff like that. But, you know, despite the St. Mark's Square and eating ice creams and gondolas and all that, Venice is kind of a, a creepy city in some ways. So it's it's a brilliant setting for this. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I think there were two reasons really why Venice was chosen. One of which is, you know, which you kind of get at the beginning and the end of the movie. You get these amazing shots over over Venice, which give the film just an extraordinary backdrop and a beauty that, you know, very few cities can bring. But but you're right. It's also the atmosphere of Venice. Venice has a sense of mystery, a sense of of um, almost darkness with the kind of wa- the way the water interacts with the buildings, the way those very narrow streets kind of you know work with each other. It's it's a very, I mean, it's a very beautiful city, but it's actually quite a frightening city in lots of ways. And I think that that definitely adds a layer to this film. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing I thought was Kenneth Branagh. He's brilliant in it, but he, he's almost, he seems to be relishing the performance. Like you, you get the feeling that he's really enjoying doing it. Now, I know he's directing it and it's probably a lot of work, but he seems to almost luxuriate in the character of Poirot. I think he does enjoy making these films. Um, I think, you know, he does have, um, and he, I, mean, I mean, he's one of the most talented actors of his generation, but he brings all sorts of layers to these films. I mean, I actually love, I mean, this, this film, there's a lot of, you know, actually quite deep psychological trauma that, that he goes through while he's wrestling with this idea of, of whether there is a supernatural or not. But I love the moments when he gets a little twinkle in his eye. And when, you know, I think Poirot is, Poirot does have humour. You are supposed to laugh with Poirot. You're certainly not supposed to laugh at him, but you are supposed to laugh with him. And there are moments in this film where you see that little bit of Ken's humour and that twinkle in his eye. And I love those lighter moments. I think they they really add to the to the depth of Poirot. Yeah, and I suppose what's maybe slightly unusual in this one, and I don't want to give a spoiler, but, you know, we meet him and he's kind of retired and he's he's world-weary. Uh, it's two years after World War II. And I suppose that's a bit of a departure as well, isn't it? That there's a small bit of psychological background in this one to Perot. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Poirot retiring bits it happens in quite a lot of books. Yeah, I suppose. He seems to start quite a lot of them. Quite a lot, you know, he starts in 1920 having retired. Yeah, and, that's true. And is still going in, in 1976 in Bookland. Um, no, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. Ken and, and the writer Michael Green have explored Poirot in these films in a way that probably my great-grandmother 
didn't. Um, you know, she she kind of let Poirot just be Poirot and investigate the cases. She didn't give him a backstory as we have done, particularly in Death on the Nile. Um, and she didn't really explore him as a as a psychological being. Um, this film, you know, Ken starts in in something of a depression at mm-hmm. the beginning, and the film, you know, s- sort of follows his journey to the end when he's back, um, willing to engage with the world, willing to take on new cases in an, in, an, in a much better frame of mind. Mm, absolutely, is uh, Tina Fey is is fantastic in it. Incidentally, was was she always the the first choice? Do you know to play the writer in it? Because it it just it it gives it something else. I mean, I think she I think she was very front of mind with it. But I mean, Ariadne Oliver is a you know is a is a famous character from you know my great grandmother's works, and I think she just lends herself to that kind of performance. I think Tina Fey brings her you know her comic chops to it, and I think um, the way she interacts with with Ken as Poirot is is extraordinary, and I think that is that's one of the the key key things that makes the makes the movie work. Yeah, her her chops are in fine form. It has to be said. Listen, <laughs> as as the I don't mean that as weird as it sounds. As the person <laughs> tasked with being in charge of the estate of your great grandmother, is it? Oh, you've probably been asked this a lot, so forgive me. But is it a big responsibility being in charge of of this estate? Like you've done lots of things with it and reinventions, and it's used in all sorts of different formats and all. But I don't know. Are there some mornings you wake up going, gosh? This is a lot to handle. This is a big responsibility. It is a big responsibility, but I mean, it is an extraordinary privilege as well. Um, you know, I get to work with some fascinating, interesting people on all sorts of projects. I mean, you know, we we look after the films, obviously, as 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 this, um, but we have TV. We do stuff with the BBC, but also all over the world. We still have an extraordinary publishing business as well as as well as plays. And, um, you know, no two days are the same. Um, But I do sit here every now and then sort of thinking, oh, my God, please don't let me be the one that messes it all up. Um, (laughs) So, yes, there is there is an element of responsibility. But, you know, we do in my great grandmother's work have quite a good, um, you know, uh, starting point. And and therefore, hopefully my ability to mess things up won't come to the fore too soon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then finally, I was trying to figure out this morning what age you were, and I was dropping my kids to school, so time got away from me. It wasn't very easy to find on the internet, but your your great-grandmother died in 1976. I'm not sure what age you are, but how long were you in the world together, or were you? Without giving away my state secrets, uh, I was <laughs> I was five or six when she died. So um, okay, you can do you can do your maths from there. Um, so I do have have vague memories of her. Um, probably most of my idea of her is kind of inherited family inheritance. Uh, my grandmother, her daughter, didn't die until two thousand and four. So she was very much a part of my life, and my father's still with us. So I do have a lot of knowledge of her from that. But I do, you know, I still I do have memories of her. I particularly actually maybe bizarrely or maybe not bizarrely remember the day she died and coming back from school and she was the lead item on the six o'clock news here in the UK and I I think that was probably the moment when I realized quite what she was and that you know not everyone's great grandmother's got that but yeah she was a very extraordinary extraordinary woman um you know my father was incredibly close to her yeah well listen thank you for sharing those small memories with me the movie's a real kind of you know saturday night watch so congratulations and continued success thank you and nice talking to you too thanks john 
James Pritchard there talking to me about his great-grandmother, Agatha Christie, whose story is the source material for A Haunting in Venice, which is in cinemas as we speak from this Friday, the 15th of September. And it's kind of a really good, honest-to-God, meat-and-potatoes Agatha Christie story, I felt. And as I say, I really like the Venetian setting of it. Up next, Tim Gray of Variety on his 42 years covering the beat in Hollywood. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now regular listeners to the show will know over the last four to five years, whenever there's been an issue in Hollywood, of which there have been many, we go to the man I've described as the Oracle of Hollywood. That is Tim Gray of Variety, who was the awards editor for, for, for Variety and has worked there for a staggering 42 years up until very recently, because it was announced last week, that he was leaving for Pastures New. So I thought we might have a quick valedictory chat about his life and times at Variety. It's not goodbye or anything like that. In fact, it's hello. Hi, Tim. How are you? Uh, Very happy to talk to you. How are you? I'm very well. So listen, Tim, outside of... And first of all, congratulations. Staying in any job for 42 years is an accomplishment. Not, not to be fired or made surplus to requirements, particularly in an industry such as that. But even outside of, you know, the business of Hollywood, in terms of variety, like what it began as and what it ended up as, I presume in those 42 years from where it is now to what it was when you joined, it was almost unrecognisable as a piece of journalism like. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the truth is I'm working on a book uh, about my 42 years there, not because my story is so interesting. You know, it's like and then I wrote a column about this and then I met. This person. Um, but but the the entertainment industry has made huge changes since 1981 and journalism has made huge changes since 1981 and variety which covers the entertainment industry we're, we're at the intersection of both of those so i thought i thought it'd be kind of interesting to to look at how things have changed and things that we take for granted now you know like like streaming uh, were just unthinkable uh, when i started at variety and when you started at variety it was very much kind of a trade tangible newspaper that had a pretty small readership i gather yeah i mean we had a a circulation of i think thirty thousand people and the editor was tom Pryor. um and uh, you know somebody asked him about the kind of small circulation he said yeah we don't have many readers but we have all the right readers um because all the studio heads all the other big executives stars would read variety. It was very small circulation. And somebody once described us as a small town newspaper that's worldwide mm. because we, we always reported on uh, what was going on overseas, you know, outside of the United States, as well as within the United States. Um, but again, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't something that the average reader in uh, in, in in Dublin or uh, in, in any small town would know about. But it, you know, it covered the industry. It's like you had to read Variety if you wanted to know what was going on in the entertainment industry. Yeah, so it had a huge life over and above its readership, and that grew and grew in the in, in the forty two years. And in terms of you know w- where it is now to where it was then, I mean, it was as I say a tangible newspaper. Now, can you even buy it in a shop in in Hollywood Boulevard or wherever? 
Probably not. I mean, because they found I, uh, while I was there, they they found that the newsstand circul uh, circulation was not. They, they weren't selling many copies because Variety started in 1905, and so from 1905 to maybe the 70s. Yeah. I mean that that was that was when you you bought it at the newsstand, uh, but but then you know things changed and. You know, and Variety, uh, when we got, we got a new owner, uh, Jay Penske, in 2012. And he was only the third owner of Variety. Because first off, it was the Silverman family who owned it 1905 to 1987. Wow. And then, and then Reed, Reed Business owned it from 87 to 2012. And then Jay bought it. And we took a quantum leap in terms of the digital, uh, mm. presence. Because, you know, for when, when Jay bought it, he, he said, you know, you're, website is just a repository for stories that have been in print and and you you've got to have original content there yeah you know you you have to make it more interesting for other people so i i felt like in my last decade there variety was basically two publications it was still the kind of the insider uh publication catering to the 30,000 people in the industry and it was worldwide you know yeah. and, and you know we would get daily updates and say hey you got half a million readers for your story yeah um and, you know and that that was unthinkable um sorry to cut yeah. across you but you say you know he turned to digital there are so many times newspapers and all sorts of things turn digital and it doesn't work out and they fall off a cliff but it's important a state variety became even more important I think once it turned digital because it's still the go-to place for up-to-date stories about the entertainment business yeah Jay, Jay Penske is uh, you know he's he's really a phenomenon because because he's a good person, he's very kind, but he's also a really smart businessman. Mm. And during the pandemic, you know, a lot of newspapers were shutting down. Yeah, uh, you know, because and and Variety actually was making more profit during the pandemic years than it was before that. You know, and and again, that's just kind of smart business stuff. Mm. And you know, I was really grateful for him because I I could see, you know, because Variety under the old owners. Uh, they weren't interested in um, in uh, digital, so it was it was like we were making money in print. That was good enough for them. Um, and you know, they, they, as long as things were running the way they were running in 1987, they were happy. Mm. Um, and that that just didn't work. And I thought, you know, seriously, there were times when I thought Variety may go out of business. Wow. Um, and now it's it's more profitable than ever. So yeah, yeah it's it, it's funny. One of the first times we spoke, it was about the streaming wars. And I've quoted you many times since because you said something and you may have been quoting somebody else. And I'm, you know, it's Chinese whispers, but I have quoted you many times that, you know, sure, Hollywood's in a state of chaos, but it's always in a state of chaos. And you reminded me of, you know, how in the 80s they were worried about, you know, uh, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger having all the power. How in the 70s they were worried about directors having too much powers. You go back to the 40s with the studio system like there's always crisis and I presume that state of perma crisis seemed to exist for the 42 years you were watching it in Variety yeah, I mean, you know, and, and Variety has its archives online where you can go back to 1906. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it was interesting to me to read because like radio, 
um, in the in the United States had a big boom um, in in the 1920s. About 1923, the number of radio sets being sold, and you know, a, a couple of years after the radio boom, the actors and the writers were asking for more money because it's like we're we're, we're doing this radio stuff for free, and the radio stations like no. We can't afford that. I mean, it's like we're not making a profit yet. And then, and then when you know, video cassettes had, had their boom in the, in the eighties. You know, the actors and writers and directors were asking for money, and they were like, "Oh no, because we're not making a profit yet." And it's like, you know, seriously, it's the same story over and over. And that's what's going on with the strike today. Mm-hmm. Is it because of streaming? You know. Um, Hollywood is having to rewrite its financial plan, which it's been following for years. Uh, and they're saying we we need more money. We we should get a fair wage. And and they're saying, oh no, we're not we're not making a profit yet. So we can, we can't pay you. In circles we move. Tell yeah. me this. I know you said when you write this book, you're not going to be just writing about. And then I interviewed this person. And then I interviewed this person. But in terms of people over the years who might have surprised you and I don't want horror stories about someone was a horrible person to you but was there anyone you met you know a big actor or actress and you thought wow that wasn't the person I was expecting I was pleasantly surprised or disappointedly surprised I mean, I I don't I mean I, I don't know that there were many disappointments. I mean, I, I'll tell you, just uh, Kevin Spacey was the rudest person I've ever met. Uh, you know, I mean, it, hands down. But you know, and I used to joke and say, look, every day I'm I'm surprised at how many kind people there are in the world, mm-hmm. and every day I'm surprised at how how rude and venal some people are. But but uh, the kind people, I mean, I don't know that they were a surprise, but I mean, people like Whoopi Goldberg and Hugh Jackman and Peter Jackson, you know, who directed the Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. films, they were so generous and open, not just with me, but I would watch them interacting with fans. And, yeah. you know, it, it, there, there was a real connection there. And also George Clooney really impressed me because I first met him like, like 20 years ago. And, and and I had a friend who had worked with him. So I, we were at a, a reception and I walked over to introduce myself and he looked at me like, oh, I'm so glad you came over. You know, it's like I was waiting for you to come over to me, you wow. know, which, of course, he wasn't. <laughs> but 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 then he we, we talked for I, maybe two, three minutes. And I, it's like I was the most important mm. person in the world. You know, he, he has that talent. Yeah. And then, you know, when we finished, he said, look, I, I got to run. And then I could see him work in the room. And he was talking to every individual like they were the most important person in the world. And he's really good at that. I mean, a lot of actors are are good at being gracious, but mm-hmm. he's he really makes it uh, seem intimate. And when I've talked to him since then, he always acts like he knows who I am. And I, but seriously, I don't know if he does. <laughs> come, uh, come. You know, he, yeah, I mean, he's he's a good actor, so it's like he might be pretending, but it's like it's okay. I yeah. mean, you know, it's 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 he's good at it, and 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 I, I have had some actors that I went up to reintroduce myself, and and they they looked at me like. Who are you? I have no recollection of ever meeting you. And I guess that's okay too, because they they meet a lot of people. Yeah. But 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 yeah, some 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 of them are really interesting. And also, you know, I, I will say in general, actors are less interesting than than the behind the scenes people. You know, the cinematographers, the sound people. They're like really interesting talking yeah. about their work, you yeah. know, because actors are very usually very prepared on what they're going to say. Yeah, um, they're very poised. But but again, Whoopi Goldberg, Hugh Jackman, it's like they're not um, 
they don't seem like they're rehearsed. They yeah. seem like genuine people. And listen, in later years, you were uh, awards editor at, at Variety. Yeah. So, like, we've spoken many times, most years, about the Oscars and the Golden Globes and things like that. But are you concerned about outside of the strike but but their future how how they're going to to be just because you know with the oscars there's been there's been a lot of controversy and and now with people not tuning in the way they used to and a lot of people watching it on you know highlights on their phone the next day and watching the infamous slap and all and feeling like they got all they needed to from just watching the highlights i mean what's your thoughts on the future of the oscars well, I, I feel like, you know, I, I'm now working for the Golden Globes. So, of course, that they're, they're my uh-huh. priority. But, but, uh, but <laughs> I was going to get um, to that in a minute. But yeah, uh, let's but, diss but, the yeah, Oscars I, first. Yeah, well, I, I feel like that with the Oscars that, you know, I've, I've written several columns saying, you know what? You guys invented a televised award show in 1953 you know that they, they came up with that format and they've been following that format and it's like it's not 1953 anymore you got to go with the with the flow yeah. and you realize i mean you know again if somebody wants to see you know will smith's acceptance speech um they know that they can go to youtube within five minutes mm-hmm. over the 24 hours and see it so they don't necessarily have to sit through the show and and i think the oscars haven't quite come to grips with that yet you know and again i feel like the entertainment industry is like like a metaphor for everything it's like you keep you have to keep moving i mean i I read a book really interesting the innovator's dilemma and it talks about big companies like like sears and roebuck and kodak and polaroid that were number one in their field and then they got kind of lazy and they got static and uh, and they kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you know, I hope I hope the Oscars don't disappear. But but I think that, that they have to they have to work at it. Yeah. And then finally, so, you know, listeners of which I have a few who've heard you many times would like to know. So you've left Variety and you're now working for the Golden Globes in, in what capacity or can you tell us? Are you even allowed to say yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, well, again, I mentioned Jay Penske when he bought Variety, and it was, I, it was really fascinating to see him turn Variety around. And he is a part owner of the Golden Globes, and so he asked me to, at the breakfast and said, "Would you be interested in working with the Golden Globes? Because I want to, you know, they've they've had a, a really um, hard reputation in the last few years. Yeah, and and I thought it'd be really fun to work with Jay again and see, see things." turn around because i think i think most people uh they know the name golden globes you know and and you know again the, the globes have gotten some bad publicity in the past few years but it but it'll be fun to help them turn that around so yeah i'm looking forward to it. my title is executive vice president and and i'm in charge of membership because of the membership was was under fire and so i'm just mm-hmm. making sure that everybody is uh, that has integrity and is is legitimate, and that the the old reputation of uh, people who are, you know, outdated and not not relevant um, and and rude, uh, you know, that that uh, that reputation is gone. So it's you know it's a challenge, but it's going to be fun. Yeah, well, no better, man. Well, listen, Variety's loss is the Golden Globes' gain. He will always be the Hollywood Oracle on this show. Tim Gray, thank you very much. God love you. Thank you for that. Tim Gray there chatting to me about his life and times in Variety. We will hear more from Tim Gray as time goes on.
he won't be a stranger, but we wish him well in his new endeavours. That's it for this week. Thanks to Amory Kane who helped out on the show. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. If you'd like to get in touch with me at any stage, please do so by emailing me screentime at Newstalk.com or you can tweet me John underscore Fardy. Next week on the show, I'll be talking to the director of this new movie, Dumb Money all about the GameStop fiasco and a lot more besides and some exciting guests on the whole coming in the weeks ahead but that's all next week in the meantime thank you for listening and enjoy the remainder of your weekend and have a safe week ahead